A note before we begin that today's episode of Read This contains mentions of suicide. Please take care while listening. Of the various tragedies of Kate Jennings, one of the tragedies is that her talent is the very thing that stops her being remembered. She's not remembered partly because she's a woman, because she's difficult, and her subject is herself, and we're not very willing to accept that as a mark for a great art. But the biggest thing that stops her work being properly remembered is that it's too short. Mm. That we somehow can't accept a chapbook of poems and a novel of 150 pages as being the great work that's been made in or about this country, and, and yet it is. That's Eric Jensen, editor-in-chief of The Saturday Paper and author of a 2017 Writers on Writers book about the Australian author Kate Jennings. As Eric describes it, Kate is one of Australia's most underread and underappreciated authors, and I have always been a fan. I met her once at a writers' festival, and she was, to put it kindly, a little on the prickly side. But there was something about her. She was electrifying. She's such an important Australian voice, and someone who deserves to be read so much more. So... I was keen to sit down with Eric and talk about why. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Almost all of Kate Jennings' writing was in some way autobiographical. From her two novels to her collections of poetry, her work is steeped in memory. She spends her whole writing career returning to her childhood, unpacking and repacking it over and over again. So it seemed fitting, then, to begin my conversation with Eric about where life started for Kate. So Kate grew up in Tamora in central western New South Wales, out in the wheat districts, big flat open plain, dry, wrecked country. She moved to Sydney for university And I guess one of the first big moments in her life was at one of the moratoriums against the Vietnam War. This was a peace march. She had insisted that a woman should be able to speak and had written this speech that became known as the Front Lawn Speech, which she actually assumed someone else would deliver. She thought that she was part of a women's collective and that, you know, that they would deliver this collectively. But no one wanted to say the things that she'd written. And so she got up at this peace rally and encouraged the women in the crowd to join in violent uprising against the men in the crowd. Watch out. You may meet a real castrating female. Or you'll say I'm a man-hating, bra-burning, lesbian member of the castration penis envy brigade, which I am. I would like to speak. It's an extraordinary speech for a 20-year-old, 19-year-old to have written. The final line is something like, tell him you know what size weapons to buy. You know what size weapon to buy to kill the bodies that you've unfortunately laid under often enough. All power to women. Kate was uh, ridiculed at the time. She, you know, she found it very intimidating and upsetting to give that speech. It's also often credited as the moment that second wave feminism arrived in Australia. And so she had already in her late teens, early 20s, made a huge contribution to Australia. 
Tell me about your first meeting with Kate Jennings. I would have been about 20 um, and I was in New York and had thought about looking her up and then read her book Snake on the Flight Across and thought, no, I definitely need to meet this person. And so I called a number I found for her and um, left a message, didn't hear back from her, went to Washington, got a call saying, all right, I'll meet you for lunch and hurried back on a greyhound and um, went to her building on the Upper West Side. She left me in the street uh, while she came down and then we went and had lunch. And, you know, it's one of those kind of immediate friendships where you feel like, even if the other person doesn't know it, that you're going to be friends. She she was sick with Zorster virus at the time and had a lot of kind of anger about that. And, you know, we're sitting lunch and she was kind of talking ravenously and eating ravenously and you know Kate's was like a you know very kind of striking six foot something person but it was like it was like having lunch with a farmhand and I only only realized afterwards that she, she had probably been trapped in her apartment it wasn't clear to me at that time but it became clearer the longer I knew Kate that part of what defined her life was persistent loneliness that she had around her. And she and I never fell out, but she fell out with almost everyone that she was ever close to. In that first lunch, given that you uh, you organised to meet with her because you were kind of drawn to her because of her writing, how much was her writing the subject of conversation or was it not at all there? Was it all kind of in the background? It was all in the background. Um, Kate had exiled herself from Australia in the late 70s And so a lot of it was her expressing frustrations at Australia, gossip about Australians, thoughts about the book industry here, thoughts about writers who she knew that I would know, who she once knew and didn't any longer like. You know, there was just a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, 20, 30 years of Kate's frustrations bottled up and and then let out, I guess, because for the rest of the time, her friends in New York didn't care very much about the writers she was scorned by here or, or you know, thought had become second rate. I think it was a chance to send home an angry letter. Was that, I mean, did she still both personally and creatively think of Australia as home at the point of that meeting? I don't think so. It's interesting. I think Kate's best work is about Australia and it was written outside Australia. She felt intensely rejected by Australia. I don't think Australia thought very much (laughs) about her at all at that stage. Her relationship with Australia was one of um, a great sense of betrayal. And then as she got older and certainly towards the end of her life, great fear of what would be the failure of going back. She was convinced that if she became old and unwell and had to move home that everything she'd done in New York would have been a joke. And um, she was very trapped and made extra lonely by this belief that she couldn't return to the place she was from. How much of that was about her own kind of personal life rather than her life as a writer? I think the reason she exiled herself was entirely about her life as a writer, about never feeling accepted, about believing that because of who she was, especially because she was a woman, because she was from the countryside, that she was never taken seriously or accepted here. 
that the only way that she could prove to all those people who didn't take her seriously was to go and be taken seriously elsewhere. Who did she take seriously in that Australian writing landscape before she left? Like, were there people that she saw where she thought this is a cultural milieu I want to be part of? Because she was a great hater. The people she didn't like are well established. By the time I met Kate, she wasn't willing to accept any Australians as her peers. Having spent time in her archive and having read her letters, there was a time where she and Ghana were very close. There was a time where she and uh, Drusilla Majeska were very close. Um, she respected Les Murray in as much as he respected her, and she was grateful for his acknowledgement because she felt others hadn't acknowledged her. She didn't feel like she belonged among Australian writers. She didn't even feel that she belonged among American writers. In this first lunch, you know, she was talking about uh, Jory Graham, the poet, and said it was embarrassing that she moves her head around when she reads and, um, you know, that it was embarrassing that Mary Oliver played so much to the bleachers and that, that Sharon Olds never got better. And so, you know, there were very few people. Maybe Robert Lowell was someone she didn't have particular criticism for. But she found flaws in almost everyone she read, I think. I'm interested in that recurring refrain of it being embarrassing the way they conducted themselves. You know, did she have a very acute sense of shame of what an appropriate way of comporting yourself both on the page and in person were? I think that's a really interesting observation. Embarrassment was a defining piece of Kate's life. I think one thing we don't consider about alcoholics and especially woman alcoholics is that if you spend a period of your time drunk, you layer onto yourself so many small embarrassments, things that you wished you hadn't done, things that people had seen you do, things that you might have forgotten doing, that you live then constantly within those embarrassments. And Kate was a very embarrassed person. And, um, you know, she used to say things like, oh, I haven't got any money. She would try to get in front of embarrassments. But she did it because she was always anxious that someone might make fun of her. And I think this goes right back to school. I don't think she fit in as a child at school. I think when she left the countryside to come to the city, he was this very smart young woman who suddenly was working as a shop girl at David Jones and was suddenly in a world that was much bigger than the one that she thought she understood. She failed her first year at university. She was so embarrassed by that she attempted suicide. I haven't really thought about it in this context before, but embarrassment is one of the things that shaped her. And it's one of the reasons that she is so ruthless as a writer. And so one of the things I really admire in her work is she kind of showed me that you shouldn't write a book if that book isn't capable of destroying you. She always put into a book so much of herself that if the book turned wrong, she would go down with it. And that's, I think, an extremely honest way to approach writing. Unless you can play it at those stakes, then you're kind of just moving around the edges of it. Was she more ruthless with herself or with others? With herself, always. Kate doesn't come out well in many of her <laughs> books. Uh, Kate doesn't come out well in her poems. It's funny, I don't think you can write about someone without in some way being in love with them. And so Kate was in love with everyone she wrote about in the same way that writing about Kate made me in love with her. When we return... Eric makes the case for why he believes Kate's novel Snake is the best Australian book he's ever read.
Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Kate Jennings wrote several books of poetry, a collection of short stories, won countless awards across her career, but it's her two novels that she's most remembered for, more like novellas, to be honest. The first one, Snake, which came out in 1996, is this pared-back, bone-dry story about a marriage. Her second and final novel, Moral Hazard, which came out in 2003, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and recounts the experience of a woman caring for a terminally ill partner. Kate is, at times, surprisingly funny. She's brutal and crisp and clear in her judgments in ways that can be shocking. They're not easy reads, necessarily, just as by all accounts she was not an easy person, but they're rewarding and they're generous in their raw honesty. It's something that's captured beautifully by Eric in his book, and arguably why he's so obsessed with Kate Jennings and her writing. In the book that you wrote about Kate, in the Writers on Writers, uh, you recount the fact that Snake as a book is a, that one that you gave to literally dozens of people as a gift, always writing in it, this is the great Australian novel. What makes it the great Australian novel to your mind? For me, it's because it's the best Australian book I've ever read. And we have all these totally valid and conflicting opinions about what would make the great Australian novel. Um, there are these expectations that they're novels of the bush or that, that they reveal some essential aspect of the Australian character or something. For me, having read Snake probably a hundred times, I'm still never really decided on what it's about. And I think that's because there is so much of a life forced within it it is so fleeting as a book. It's not at all demonstrative. It's not terribly concerned with asking you to understand what it's doing. And it never pretends that what it's doing is in any way complicated either. So, you you know, you read the book and at one time it's about a family and at another time it's entirely about the way that sex corrupts and at another time it's absolutely about faulted ambitions. I now think... Snake is about the way in which a childhood can trap us and, you know, the way in which possibly for all of us, you know, we, we live until we're 80 maybe because we need all that time to understand what happened in the first 14 years. And, and Snake is very much that book. It's a book about the way childhood is inescapable and then seeing how much that was true for Kate, how much of her life was spent unable to escape this childhood that she was now several decades from made me realise that, you know, not only was that the book, but that was in some ways, or at least for some of us, the condition of living. And I think for, for Kate in particular, having been an alcoholic, having got sober, having spent several decades in AA, telling the story of being a child 
which she did every week when she got up to speak um, in meetings, forced her to stay within that story. I think it's one of the reasons that Kate doesn't have more books, is that this one book utterly consumed her and then the nature of sobriety kept her within that space, that she she spoke herself into being to explain her drinking over and over and over again, almost to the degree that she couldn't leave it. I really adore Stank. It is one of my favourite Australian novels. But definitely when I read it, I knew nothing about Kate's biographical details and enjoyed it regardless. To what extent, as someone who is such a student of Kate's life and her work, to what extent is it most easily understood as an autobiographical novel? So when you would ask Kate that question, she would tell a story about seeing Jamaica Kincaid read and someone asking Jamaica Kincaid that question and um, Kincaid saying, everything, even the commas, are autobiographical. (laughs) Um, Kate would say that the people were real but the events weren't always, that it was less bad than it really was, that she had to clean it up, but that the feelings were absolutely autobiographical. And I remember when I was working on this this book, I would talk to Kate about specific chapters and um, there's one chapter in there about wearing a, a shot silk dress that her mother had made for her. And it was the first time in talking about the book that Kate started talking about the character of Gurley in the first person, that, you know, I can remember that dress. I remember being there. I must have been about eight. Um I'm loath to consider it simply autofiction because I think we use that to dismiss the writing of women in particular. It's vastly more than someone recording their own life. But obviously all that is in the book, right down to the lesbian motorcycle rider who has an affair with her mother, all of these people are real and came in a very real sense from her childhood. This is from Kate's second and last collection of poetry, Cats, Dogs and Pitchforks, which came out in the early 90s. This poem is called Father and Daughter. It came to this, the panic at not being loved, an overdose in the middle of the morning. She slept for five days, strapped down in a hospital cot, and when she woke to stew in her shame, her father was by her bedside. For a moment as long as a word of praise, neither spoke. In that small silence, questions ripened. She stood waiting for an ambulance to take her to the psychiatric hospital. She was dressed in a hospital robe and booties, one size fits all, worn thin by other people's fear. The linoleum was as cold as the sea in winter. She held a paper bag containing a toothbrush and a copy of Tribune, which a cleaner had given her. The air tasted bitter, of walnuts gone black in the shell. Tell me why you chose that poem in particular. I think that poem says a huge amount about a couple of Kate's key concerns. One is the repetition of phrases that have skipped between her work. So that the idea there of the taste of walnuts black in their shell was in this poem an idea about shame that very same line appears in her final novel Moral Hazard which is among other things about the moment at which she helps her husband to die this is before euthanasia was in any way legal and she had taken it upon herself um, to help her husband die 
and she leaves the room and she tastes in the air walnuts black in their shell. And in that book, those walnuts are the taste of grief. And I think what is wonderful in that is that Kate feels the same thing twice, but by the time she had met her husband Bob, the shame that she felt when she was young and suicidal had been replaced by the love that she had for Bob. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful and important point about, in her work, coming back to stuff. Yeah. Coming back to stuff and realising that actually being in love had transformed shame into grief and that she had been able to feel that same thing twice and feel it differently. She had this dexterity in her work that allowed her to throw an idea into the lake of her writing and know that the ripples would be different depending on how that idea appeared. And it's, you know, she she had this incredibly consistent body of work that orbited with great insight a limited number of ideas that she brought something new to each time. The other thing that I love about that poem is it's it's a poem about her sustaining affection for her father, that he arrived in a hospital where she thought she had, was going to die and that he need not even say anything to her, but that, you know, she calls it a silence long enough for a word of praise, that that was enough to let her know that there were reasons to be here and that the dysfunction she felt in her life and that she felt in her family wasn't so great that she couldn't be forgiven it or forgive herself for it. One of the great cliches of writing is that notion of writing as therapy, and it seems to me to be something she would resist. But I'm interested in that relationship between the way in which she worked through grief, shame, but also love and affection through her work. And, and for Kate, there was no therapy in the writing. The writing made things worse. <laughs> you know, um, if you want to be a writer, she says, prepare for a life of failure. Um, everything great that Kate wrote, it was painful for her to write. She'd talk about chaining herself to the chair to get it done. And she would say, if I didn't, then what was it all for? The writing didn't free her from anything. If anything, it trapped her in, in stuff. The, the more she wrote, the more trapped she was. There was, no, there was no way in which her work was going to make her feel better about her life. And when you asked her why she did it, she would say, I had to get it out. But there wasn't anything like happiness or salvation on the other side of that. There was usually just a new acquaintance with the same old grief. If writing wasn't therapy for her in any way and didn't make her feel better, did she write to bring the world closer or to build something between herself and the world? I think Kate wrote to bring the world closer. I actually am not sure that you can write poetry without doing that. I think you can write biography and you can write novels, but you can't write poetry. Kate said to me once about my own poems uh, that, you know, that they were a little bit revealing. And then she reflected, but I write naked in front of a plate glass window. That's an interesting way to compliment another writer's work. <laughs> and it's true. There is, you know, there isn't a poem of Kate's where you don't feel like she's absolutely telling the truth. You say, though, that she knew 
how good her work was? Was there pride in that? How much of her identity lay in the fact that regardless of whether she liked it or not, regardless of whether she took pleasure from doing it or not, when she wrote, she made something of value? Absolutely. She knew, she knew what words could do. The incredible thing about Kate is how little she wrote and even when she did write, how she would cut it back to be even less. And she could use a word like thready or something to describe a voice that is so antique and so much born of the little schoolhouse she must have been um, educated in. She could use that to kind of light an entire poem. She knew exactly how a sentence sat. She knew how to be funny. She knew how to be cutting. She knew everything you could get out of the smallest number of words. And she knew that was a gift. For all the embarrassment we talked about before, it was never because she didn't think she was good enough. Where, where is Kate most visible in your own writing today? I mean, Kate, Kate is enormously present in the poems I write and, you know, sometimes explicitly so. But there's no writing that I do that hasn't found some of its voice in, in Kate's work. Kate Jennings's many books are still in print and readily available. Her essays and speeches, including the genuinely incendiary front lawn speech, are collected in an edition called Trouble. And from the sounds of things, if you make friends with Eric Jensen, he'll probably buy you a copy of Snake. You can find Eric's book on Kate as part of the Writers on Writers series at your local independent bookstore, along with Eric's other books, including his beautiful collection of love poems, I Said the Sea Was Folded. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading this week and partly prompting this episode is Eric's new book. It's the collected editorials of 10 years of the Saturday paper. It is a galling thing to have to say about one's colleague, but there is a certain kind of genius to the way Eric writes those editorials week in, week out. And the snapshot across 10 years is this horrifying picture of a country that's lost its way. Wonderful journalism, but actually an extraordinary book of essays in its own right, and well worth picking up. It's called Angry at Breakfast, and I can't help but feel Kate Jennings would have liked it a lot. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it and rate and review. It helps a lot. Next week on Read This, I chat with award-winning author Gail Jones about her latest novel, One Another. I, I mean, I think One Another is a book about reading and writing, and it's a book about, in part, I think, the phenomenology of reading and how much my protagonist, Helen, wants to connect or attach to another writer. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames, mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fecho. Special thanks this week to Atticus Basto and to Anna Stewart, who provided the voice of Kate Jennings reading her front lawn speech early in the episode. Thanks for listening. See you next week.